Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host, Denise Messenger, for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Hello, listeners. Today is September 1st, 2016. I'm so glad that you're joining us today. We're going to have a really great show. We're going to be talking to Melissa Hood. She's going to tell us how she was able to overcome living with ADHD and dyslexia. There's a lot of that going around now, um, particularly um, parents have great challenges with their children with ADHD, and of course, so does the school systems. She wrote a book called Memoirs of an ADHD Mind. Her background uh, is that she lost 40 jobs in 15 years as a result of her struggle with ADHD. But she turned it around, and now she wants to inspire everyone. Her book we're going to be talking about, and um, it's just the greatest book. It's called Memoirs of an ADHD Mind. I wanted to remind you of that again. And um, we really get into it because I think it's so important. It's really important information. So let's bring Melissa on now. Hello, Melissa. Hi, Denise. Thanks for having me. We're delighted. I always start my show out by asking my my guests how they got on the road that they're on today, but with you, it's it's pretty obvious. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like you were you were born with with this, and um, so let's let's start talking about it because I'm sure our listeners okay. are really curious. What was your childhood like? Well, you know, I had a an Aptin tool, probably about the age of eight years old, because the scientific world hadn't diagnosed the condition probably until about 17 years ago. So that was probably, I'm 50 now, so it's probably, what, 40 years ago? So they were probably about mm. 20 years out. So, yeah. Um, but I was, you know, I was really rambunctious, super impulsive. Um, I wanted to bring my whole world to life. And so say when my mom would tell me don't touch the stove it's hot I would actually my curiosity would take over impulsivity and I would want to know for myself because that's that's our natural inclination it's not like we're trying to be disobedient Mm -hmm. or defiant we're just curious we're very curious people and so as young children we have a tendency to get into a lot of things so that was my world um I got into a lot (laughs) got into a lot of trouble so, <laughs> Were you um, the only child? No, I have a brother. Um, actually, my brother does not struggle with any conditions. Actually, he whizzed right through school, and 
I, on the other hand, with elementary school, um, it was interesting because I would ace the California Achievement Test. We took that at the end of the year every, at every age, like every school year, and I would ace it. But I would struggle in all of my classes grade-wise. And so what I came later to learn in my BA um, was that I was dealing with the teacher's teaching style versus my learning style. And for ADHD learners, we need all four learning styles in order to grasp the information, which is visual, hands-on, repetition, and audio learning. And so most teachers teach from an, uh, an audio style of teaching. So I was just getting bits and pieces or in part. But now I know better, so yeah. Oh, interesting. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. So visual, audio, hands-on, and what was the fourth one? Repetition. 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 And, and, and it's usually because a lot of these kids, I mean, they're brilliant. I always tell when I meet these kids, I recognize them a mile away. And they're quirky. They have these ticks and quirks about them, but they're brilliant. I mean, and that's why they get bored so mm -hmm. easily because mm -hmm. their mind's all over the place. Their their mind is always thinking. It's always it's a very much of a they're a visionary type of personality. They're very creative, and while they're young, it's interesting to me because what I've learned, um, even about myself, I learned a lot of, through my own life, obviously, but and and it's through a lot, too, of doing, uh, conducting research and things, too, of studying a lot of people like myself. But when the brain is younger, the brain is less cognitively developed. So it's an immature, obviously it's immature. And mm -hmm. so the brain mm -hmm. is trying to mature into higher cognitive development, higher critical thinking skills. And so what the brain does when the child is younger like, say, elementary school, it really gravitates more to the creative right-side thinking. So the child is probably really creative. They want to tinker with things, uh, say they're into electronics, or they want to fix things. They tear things apart, put them back together, things like that. Or they may be into the arts. Who knows? But um, and they, Or they may gravitate to music because all of these things are structured exercises, and they help the brain to develop. And so... As the child grows older and starts maturing, the brain starts maturing, what the brain is trying to do is it's trying to maneuver over into left brain thinking into more of its analytical skills. But because of the stop-start process, I call it a stop-start process, when the brain gets under stress, stress is the number one trigger of the condition, and it creates the brain, uh, it causes the brain, excuse me, to misfire which causes these distractions and bunny trails, and they, they forget where they're going and things like that. So it's just super, super interesting in how all this works, so this phenomenon, they call it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is it something that <clears throat> is well-known today in the school system? You know, I have to say, I have to give educators kudos because I think that educators are finally being trained with not all, but some, especially special ed teachers and things like that or special needs teachers, um, they're being trained more in their, like, say, college academia where they're being taught how to teach students like myself. And so I really... Um, I'm noticing it more, say, within the college level. I don't really honestly know how it is at high school and educate, or excuse me, elementary school levels. But mm. um, 
I've been talking to a lot of counselors and things at the high school level, and mm-hmm. I have noticed at that level because of uh, lower uh, SAT scores and things like that, um, they're concerned with these kids being able to maneuver into college-level learning. And so they're trying to prepare them. They're trying to find out how they can better prepare them because of their struggles in learning. Because the ratios for success for these kids, did you know Kaminsky stated that only out of all high school kids that even get diagnosed, a lot of them go undiagnosed, uh, that struggle with ADD, ADHD, only 12% graduate from high school. The rest go into lower-income jobs. They go into construction jobs or fast-food jobs because they just can't grasp learning. And it's too much for them. It's too stressful. So out of that 12%, only 7% will ever attain a BA. And this is what really troubles me is that out of that 7%, only 4% will ever attain a master's and only 1.2% will ever attain a Ph.D., and that I found that out hmm. in my research in my master's program, and, and it just, man, it, it like deflated my balloon, if you will, because I yeah. thought, golly, uh-huh. you know, how do they do it then? Mm-hmm. You know, what do they do? It's very troubling. Hmm. So yeah, yeah, those are not but educators. Are getting, those are not good statistics at all. Mm-mm. It's discouraging, very discouraging. And when I went in for my orals and my writings on my master's program. Um, how all this came about was even writing my book. Um, I had developed coping skills for myself, thinking that everybody did that. I just thought, well, this is what most people do when they're trying to get through college without knowing that I developed a new technique. And so because of the way that I learn and, and because of the difficulty in writing a master's thesis, I thought I'm going to write something that I know something about or feel like I know something about. And so I wrote it on my coping skills. Well, all of a sudden, all of these professors started asking to sit on my panel. And it usually consists of about three professors. And when I walked in, I had 12. And so I was really Ah, overwhelmed. That's great. (laughs) Well, it was when I found out afterwards. But I was like, whoa, what's (laughs) wrong with this picture? <laughs> but I had my professor because I thought I was in trouble. I was thinking, did I mess this up? Did I uh-huh. screw this up? This bad kind of a thing. Well, my professor called me off to the side and he's like, "No, they requested to sit on your panel. I guess just go in there and talk about this." And so I still don't know why they're there. I go in there and I'm discussing this, and these professors are so engaging. I mean, I was in my element because I was talking about, and in my head, I'm thinking, in my, having this dialogue in my head, thinking. Don't they know this stuff? They, I mean, I don't understand why they're asking me all these questions, I guess because I'm having to defend my, my thesis. So after it's all said and done, my same professor met me out in the hallway, and he said, Missy, how did you learn this stuff? And I said, why are they all in there? And he was like, this is brand new. This is branching off into training. PTSD research for soldiers who have brain injuries as well as students with ADD because you've opened up a brand new door with your research. And so, long story short, that led to, I received multiple awards for that, and I'm not trying to keep my own horn there, I'm just telling you, because it was brand new to me at the time, and that's how I got into my PhD program. So it's like, wow. So I never intended to be where I'm at, but here I am. <laughs> Isn't that, that's just such a great story. It really is. What, yeah, it was really what did you develop? Part. What did you develop? What did you develop? Well, what, what, what are these coping it, skills? 
Well, you know, we have healthy coping skills and unhealthy coping skills, and for every individual it's different. I mean, if you struggle with ADD, it's obviously going to be very, very different because our brain doesn't see black and white at all. And the less mature the brain, the less its ability to see and define high points from low points of information when we're studying or when we're at work. And so that's why these students, that's why their brains get overwhelmed and they have they get stuck in these lower-end jobs because it doesn't require them to look at all this type of information on a day, uh, you know, ongoing basis. And so they get stuck in, say, receptionist jobs or contract jobs, et cetera, et cetera. But what the brain is actually trying to do, and I'll get into the coping skills here in a second, um, it's trying to filter the information. That's what it, it organize it. That's what it's trying to do so that the student can comprehend it or the employee can comprehend it. So what my brain, mm-hmm. what I had to do, is I had to develop a color system or a color blocking system while I was in college. And I used color highlighters, which most people think, well, that's average. Or I use uh, color post-its or I use color blocking. And say I have 20 pages of notes in college. That's overwhelming to my brain. Overwhelming. Black and white sheet of paper, white sheet of paper with black ink. Completely overwhelms my brain, even today. So what mm-hmm. I had to do was go back and retrain my brain. Say I get a fuchsia highlighter, and I highlight things about the 1776 revolution, and say the 1776 revolution has 20 points underneath it. Well, I'm going to highlight all that in hot pink. Say then it say the topic shifts to 1980. I'm just generic. And I highlight all that in yellow. So it's much easier Instead of my brain having to try to grasp 20 pages of notes, I look at everything in pink. Mm-hmm. My brain will grasp, memorize verbatim everything under that pink information. And be able. And be, from doing that and utilizing that coping skill, I went from making an S in a class to a straight A. And it's just because mm. it simplifies things for my brain. And so, like, say at work, um, I had, I at a minimal... All year round, I would have a minimal of maybe 50 post-its all over my computer, colored post-its. And so those were pertinent information. That was something that I knew. Everything was different. And as I used repetition, as was my style of learning, I would go through it over and over again. And I would know that secondhand, it would become second nature to my brain that every time I saw one of those colored post-its, something very pertinent was on those sheets of paper. And I would do the same thing, say, in my studying. I'd put colored post-its on my study notes, and, and I would I would uh, tag, ear tag, like pieces of uh, pages of information that I knew that I had to go back and listen to. So those are some coping skills. The other coping skills are, say, when you have important deadlines. Um, I would tell I tell these students make sure you you use your cell phone because cell phone or media uh, technology actually is very structured in the way it's set up. So it depends on us telling it what to do. But if you get in the habit mm-hmm. of say you put a deadline in there, take your meds or paper is due or be at this study group at this time or this meeting at this time then it just becomes sacred nature to you, and you become very reliant on that as a coping skill. Or, and, and well, and by doing these things, and these are these are menial probably to most people, but to my brain it's everything. And so as I utilize them, I organize and create structure around my world, which helps me to function very, very well. And then I can mm-hmm. just breeze through 
you know, a job or breeze through my study time and get a whole lot done in a little amount of time. It's amazing. That sounds dumb, but um, and not, at too much, tell me. Uh, not at all. Not at all. No, no. Um, um, I mean, the reality is, is because we have this technology, it mm-hmm. it allows us to do more. It does. And mm-hmm. you and you have, um, you know, developed a a system to help ADHD. Um, you know, children and and um, adults. Well, and what's really cool about it's similar, that is, we- in other words, when you in, in in other words, when you use this like the cell phone for to remind you to do certain tasks or for appointments. Well, that's kind of similar to what a parent would do for a child. Absolutely, and you understand so, when when kids in elementary school or in high school. The reason why they do probably better is because that's where they have mandated structure. You have people making decisions for them, uh, keeping schedules, making sure they're doing their homework, making sure they're home at uh, you know at night on time or by, what have you, making sure they're in class, mandatory attendance. That is mandated structure. And so when kids leave the say high school environment, trying to gravitate and you know, uh, what do you say, acclimate into college, some people are better at creating structure than others. Some people just naturally do it because mm-hmm. they're better organizers, because they're more mature, you know, in their emotional capacity. But if a child doesn't have the executive function or the maturity within their executive functions of the brain and they have those types of huge changes, it, they'll shut down and they'll fail out because they don't know how to create structure. They don't know how to adapt to that change and create that structure, which helps them to function in that environment. And that's with anybody. Actually, if you think about that on the big picture thing, um, mm-hmm, people need mm-hmm. people in our society don't know how to self-soothe. I was talking to a one of my friends. His name is Dr. Charles Parker. And also my other friend, who, they're both psychologists. One's a psychiatrist, one's a psychologist. And Dr. James Summit. And they were talking about how society has lost the ability to self-soothe. They don't know how to maneuver through stress. They don't know. They just exist. They just, they're just trying their best to survive every day because of the fast pace of technology and the fast pace of everyday living. And so we've forgotten these techniques. And so for the ADHD brain, multiply that times 10 and then ask us to function. And it's like overwhelming, overwhelming. Because mm-hmm. our mm-hmm. brains are already going 100 miles an hour, so it, it's just it's mm-hmm. another stimuli that adds to the chaos that we already live in. It's interesting. Hmm. Well, you know, mental health skills are really important, um, right? You know, for for success in, in any and everything in our lives, um, Absolutely. because it affects any and everything. What's true. Um, you so know, we, we were talking. We were we were ahead. talking earlier about uh, symptoms of ADHD, and um, you know, take it a step back even further. It was very difficult to diagnose. Are there still cases today where they are not able to diagnose kids with they, ADHD? Like they might be at the borderline, or they're not responding to the tests. 
I believe that there are, and it's interesting that you say that too, because I, I did a radio interview recently with, um, I was talking about Dr. Charles Parker, and, um, and and not just him, but several other people who have known people. Almost everybody seems to know somebody that struggles with a condition to some extent or another, and they set the, the clinical definition of it is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, but it borderlines on the spectrum of autism, and so dependent upon the fracturing, I, I call it a fracturing of the heart or the mind, and almost every single person that I have interacted with or tried to coach or even counsel that struggle with the condition has some type of trauma that they've experienced, say, in early childhood. And so it causes a fracturing of the mind or a fracturing of the heart. So as the mind thinketh, so goes life. And so if the mind stays fractured or doesn't have emotional coping skills, like you say, a fracturing of any kind um, can it can either become more splintered and go off into schizophrenia, which is a huge concern, mm. which causes huge mm. mental health issues. It causes homelessness. It causes an inability to function and be a functioning part of society. And so I believe that's a contributing factor as to why we're seeing homelessness increase, uh, why we're seeing the jobless rates increase, because people are losing the ability to cope. They're losing the ability to create structure, to create, organize, and keep their emotions uh, or self-soothe. They're losing that capacity mm -hmm. because it's happening. Life is moving so fast. And so it's becoming a huge concern for mental health advocates, and it is one for me, mm -hmm. big one for me. Mm -hmm. I bet. And so my I, concern, um, you know, in, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. Go ahead, please. In reading... In reading your, your book, Memoirs of an ADHD Mind, Melissa Hood, you talked about re relational issues that you had from your childhood and on. Um, obviously, ADHD people go through these. Why don't you speak about that? Well, it's a big deal, um, and I used to think, you know, I don't really honestly know if it's just ADD, ADHD people, but I have a tendency to really believe that they do get targeted in this sense because of our, we have chaotic worlds, and the younger we are, the less our ability to obviously uh, maneuver through them because we have less emotional maturity too. And so mm -hmm. if these kids have great parents, and I'm not saying a parent's bad if they don't know how to deal with the condition, but I'm saying discerning parents who understand, um, okay, my kid can be a target. My kid could be easily targeted because of mm -hmm. their perceived chaos. Um, in in my mm -hmm. world, even in high school, I was in extracurricular activity. I was in drill team. And it was before it was ever diagnosed. And so I would get targeted and bullied, severely bullied, um, by girls in our group or even by the instructor because they didn't think I was performing up to task and unbeknownst to them I was struggling with a condition that I didn't even know I had and so it was affecting me all the way around in studies and in being able to maintain the GPA and I was under constant stress which caused even lower performance abilities because of the stress and so gravitated after that I gravitated into I say life and I'm trying to, I had boyfriends and 
tried to, you know, have romantic relationships with, you know, have a normal dating life. And um, But I noticed a pattern in a lot of the, the guys that I would draw to myself or relationships and that I would draw people that were hidden abusers. And I learned very quickly, and it wasn't just there either. It was in jobs. I would draw people that were like the office bully or whatever, and they would just start really going to town on me and trying to tear me apart because they saw me as a very chaotic person. And my world was, but I was doing the very best that I could to function at that level of my maturity and of ADHD that I could. And so I called them Good Samaritans. And they're really manipulators and abusers and controllers who come in and they think that they're doing us a huge favor. And this this goes for ADHD people or not. This is just good mental health information, actually. But people who come into our world who want to control us and who want to manipulate us or who see us as just somebody to beat up on, I I really, really warn parents of these kids, and I even warn these kids, if somebody's not valuing you or if they're devaluing you and they're constantly finding something wrong with you, they don't deserve your time. They don't, because I think everybody is should be considered a precious pearl. And I think that we sometimes need to learn how to guard our own hearts to people with really dysfunctional mental issues themselves. And so I had to learn how to recognize them, and honestly now I see them coming a mile away. I recognize the behaviors, and it always starts off very subtly. Oh, that's good. And this is how they start off. They start off Interesting. to where they start nitpicking you and tearing you down subtly or making backhanded comments mm-hmm. about you, backhanded compliments mm-hmm. in front of your peers or what have you. That's not love. That's not loving behavior at all. Mm-hmm. That is very uh, that becomes very abusive. It can become physically abusive, verbally, emotionally, and it just escalates. And so, when you recognize these symptoms, don't be afraid to say, "Hey, man, you've got to go. I'm sorry. That's not love, and I don't want your brand of love." You need to get counseling. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't have a problem telling somebody that anymore at all, because it's it's just not That's it's good. not healthy. It's not healthy. So no. And and we have to learn to be our own advocates. Think about especially these mm-hmm. kids. These kids, this is my biggest concern in this, and I don't, hope I'm not talking too much again. Um, but this is, I'm passionate about this. And I tell kids, uh, the, the parents of these kids that struggle with ADD, ADHD, that if you see a teacher behaving like this towards your child, because teachers have it, and I love teachers, I have them in my family, so don't, please don't write me dirty letters. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I do, but I've noticed that I know the teaching profession is very stressful as well, and so I understand that aspect of it. But if these parents see their kids being targeted, your children don't know how to be their own advocates at that age, not necessarily. They're learning, you know, through social media, mm-hmm. but they're not really being an advocate and standing up to a bully and saying, hey, man, your behavior's unprofessional, and I don't like it. That makes me feel uncomfortable. Go to your parent. Let your parents become your advocate until you're of age. Let them do that. Teach them to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's great. That's a biggie with me. I'm, um, I'm curious, um, what what made you decide to go to college? Oh, gosh. Um, my dad died. I mean, you lost, you lost a lot of, you lost a lot of jobs, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. And, I don't know, 
did you have your college degree? No, or did you not no, have not your at college all. degree? No, ma'am. Okay. Uh, it took me a long so, time. It took me about 15 what, years. I what went made the job losses in the 15 years prior to college. And so I, I went to school late, actually, and I attempted it twice when my father was alive, and I failed out. And then after my dad died, my mom and my brother sat me down, and they're like, hey, you need to go back to school. And I was like, are you kidding me? You're asking me to do the impossible. Mm-hmm. And my brother was like, you have to have a way to take care of yourself, Missy, and that's, that's the only way we see how you could possibly do that. And I hadn't been diagnosed yet at that point, and oh, my gosh. That was the most frustrating time in my life, actually. That combined with the job losses. Because they saw me losing all the yeah. jobs, and I think that's what mm-hmm. scared them. They're like, do you need counseling? <laughs> yeah, now I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know what's going on. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, in your book you talk about how it usually takes students four years to graduate. And now... Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that it's almost five years because the colleges are so heavily impacted. But um, it took you six years, which really, um, considering the um, the hill you had to climb, that was pretty good. Yeah. You think? Well, that's the first time I've ever heard somebody say that. Thank you so much. <laughs> I felt like it took me forever, actually, because... No, no, not at all. I mean, uh-uh. Well, my my friends all. that I mean, we all look at that. going to school. Look what you did. Mm-hmm. Finally, finally, yeah. Um, but, yeah, most people graduate in like three and a half to four years, but I'd failed a few classes while I was going to school trying to learn them. And so i just go back and take it again and keep taking it until I passed it. And then I realized that, I didn't do so well in bigger universities with these bigger classes, and so I switched to a smaller university with more one-on-one time with my professors. And I, I ended up graduating from St. Ed's University in Austin, and I had great professors who would notice I wasn't doing so well, and they're like, Missy, I want you to come to my class or come to my office and on such and such date every week, and I'm going to tutor you. And I was like, Really? I've never had a professor offer to do that for me before. And so they really went above and beyond to really help me succeed. And it was just a life-changing event. And then at, it was sad at the same time because at the in my last year of college, and I wish I had done it sooner, but so many people in my life had told me there was, there was always something wrong with me. It was all the time. It's like, you know, you're, you're, I was all over the place and... I was always getting distracted, and I just got tired of people telling me something was wrong with me. And so I didn't get diagnosed until sure. I was like 28, and almost a year, almost had a year to go to college. And I wish I'd done it sooner. So much, so. But yeah, mm-hmm. that was how the ball rolls. So, but I got out. Yeah, that's thank heaven. Yep, you did. You did, and and I think too that when you're in the college environment, a lot of those professors. Uh, will um, talk to you about, you know, going forward with your master's. That's what a lot of the um, curriculum is about, really, is to take that next step after that. So I assume you had some mentors there that encouraged you to do that? 
You know, I did not. Um, in my master's, it took me another 12 years because the first, my first six years was so, it was grueling. My, my undergrad mm-hmm. degree was grueling for me. Um, that it took me another 12 years to get the courage to go back to school, to even try. And the only reason, as oh. crazy as it sounds, I'm serious, the only reason I ended up getting my master's I was just going to take one class. I wouldn't even, had no intention of getting a master's, none. I was just going to take one class to consolidate my student loans because my payments were too high, and I was sitting at Starbucks with a friend, and she's oh. like, Missy. I told her that, and she's like, why would you put yourself through all that with nothing to show? And I was like, because I can't get in. I can't pass the GRE because of the way that I learned. And she's like, well, you need to talk to my chair. And so I went and talked to the chair of, the Texas State University, and it was great because mm-hmm. he was the first person. He sat back in his, he just like leaned back in this big chair and he said, Miss Hood, what do you want to do with your life? And I was like, my aspirations were so small then. I was like, become an office manager? That was what I thought my lot in my, my lot. And that's a great career. I had a great career as an office manager, but that's as big as mm-hmm. I could dream mm-hmm. at that point because I was felt so limited. So mm-hmm. it's amazing. It's amazing how life works, I guess. So I got it. I got uh, accepted into my master's, and that's what changed my whole world. Changed everything. Game changer, mm-hmm. big time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I, and that's, that's what something great. too. I want to encourage everybody. You know, whether they struggle with ADHD in in it's not about my book is not just about ADHD. It's about obstacles. Everybody, I believe everybody mm-hmm. in this life mm-hmm. is given some type of an obstacle, whether it's a relationship, whether it's financial, whether it's uh relational say in a marriage. I, I don't know, you know, a, a not being able to move never past certain places in your career. But it's an obstacle. And I first always tell people, don't ever let go of your dreams, because if you stop dreaming, you stop living. And not just that, mm-hmm. but when you have an obstacle, how do you approach the obstacle? Is it? I mean, I approach mine from a spiritual perspective. Do you have some spiritual foundation that and a support system mm-hmm. there? People go to people, like you call mentors. I call them mentors as well, where you can say, hey, man, you know, I'm having a rough week this week in this situation, and I want move forward i want to move into a new tomorrow and in bouncing your ideas off brainstorming with people finding other avenues of things we might not have even thought about but being open to that Mm -hmm. so that we don't limit ourselves and just stay Mm -hmm. stuck the stay stay, staying stuck is the most frustrating thing on the planet and people spend they waste years of of their life doing so so i'm here to Mm -hmm. encourage people you know, how not to get stuck, how not to stay stuck, but to continue moving into your dreams. Sure. Well, you're a wonderful example of that. Just a, uh, uh, an amazing example. Thank you so much. Is there uh, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our audience? And we've covered a lot of material, and it's it's really been very useful, very, very useful and very encouraging. Um, I think 
You know, no, I think I've covered it pretty much. I mean, if, if people are wanting to get my book, they're welcome. It's, it's selling at um, Morgan James Publishing. Uh, my website, I do public mm -hmm. speaking. Uh, I do a lot of inspirational speaking and talking about my life and background, but they're, they can go to missyhood.com, um, and I have information there about prayer, about anything that you have need of, and I'll answer my emails. Or you can buy my book at barnesandnoble.com. So go check it out. And I also have oh, a great. blog site. It's called Tame, Tame Your Brain Now. So go check that out, too. I give daily nuggets of wisdom. But thank you so much for today. You're, you're so welcome. It was a pleasure having you on our show. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, listeners, that pretty much wraps our show up for today. And uh, please join us again next Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, which is also 7 o'clock New York time. We'll have another wonderful guest and a great show for you. So until then, be healthy. Bye-bye. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have and follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit gotcancernowwhat.com com for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, God Cancer, Now What?